So please open up your Bibles to Psalm 95. I know that if you looked at the, um, the order of worship, it says Psalm 84, and that's 100% my fault. Um, I sent the wrong message and, and the wrong psalm, wrong text, and then it was too late to change it. We'll look at Psalm 84 in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, but today we're looking at Psalm 95. And while you're turning there, I don't know if you've noticed, perhaps you have, that if you, when you come into our church through the, through the main entrance, the main doors down Main Street, there's an inscription on one of the bricks. And that inscription is the answer to the first question in uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question asks, what is the chief end of man? And the inscription says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's it's a wonderful inscription to have on uh, by the front doors of a church because man's chief end, our chief purpose is to glorify God, to enjoy him, to to worship him. And we were created to, to worship God. But whenever we make that statement, it, it, it raises an important question. You know, what, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean to, to worship God? How are we to, to worship God? Whenever we gather here on Sunday morning, you know, what's supposed to happen between the call to worship and the benediction? What, what elements should be included? What, what, what are the characteristics that should mark our worship service? Well, Psalm 95 answers many of these questions for us. And if just hearing the title, Psalm 95, doesn't um, call to mind some of the words in Psalm 95, I believe whenever I begin to read it to you, you'll think, oh, okay, I know this one. You know, because it is often used as a call to worship, and, and rightfully so. Now, you'll also notice looking at your text that there's no, there's no uh, title beyond what the, the, the English translation of your Bible provides. You know, some Psalms have a title that's in a little bit smaller print, and it's part of the original Hebrew text. But in this case, we don't know who the author of Psalm 95 was. We don't know the context. We don't know the date. And that's okay, because we don't need to know all of that uh, to understand and even to be able to apply this, this timeless message of, of, of Psalm 95. And it really is a timeless message, just as applicable to our lives today as it was thousands of years ago when it was first written. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word, Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. And you know, as I was reading Psalm 95, um, you may have noticed that uh, in the middle of verse 7, it makes a hard turn. 
that, that it goes from a, from a, a psalm of, that's calling us to worship, a psalm inviting us to worship with, with joy and thanksgiving and praise, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All of a sudden, there's a hard turn. It, it turns very, very serious and very somber very quickly. That uh, it's been said that you know that, that you know Psalm 95 doesn't follow the, the 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 typical pattern of the Psalms. And now, and the Psalms are all different. And so there's, but but I think you can say I think you can say more or less there is a a general pattern in many of the Psalms. Many of the Psalms begin with there's an issue. There's the, the psalmist is in anguish. He's having some issue. He's been crying out for the Lord, and it appears that the Lord is not listening. He's not answering. He's he's not responding. And then. At the end of the psalm, the Lord answers. The Lord responds. Well, Psalm 95 is just the opposite in many ways. But the psalm begins with a call to worship. And there's joy. And there's thanksgiving. And there's reason to praise our great God, the great king above all gods. The great king, our great shepherd. You know, we're the sheep of his pasture. And then it turns to this somber warning, this call to examine our hearts there at the end. So our outline today is a guide to our worship and a warning for our hearts. A guide for our worship and a warning for our hearts. And so first, a guide to our worship. You know, what, what elements should and characteristics should mark our worship? First, look at verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us. Five times in the first six verses of this psalm, we see that phrase, let us, let us. And I, I don't want us to run past that too quickly because of the, you know, the hyper-individualistic culture that we live in. We shouldn't miss that phrase, come, let us. The psalmist doesn't say, come, let me, but come, let us. And so it's a clear uh, call to communal corporate worship for God's people. Come, let us gather and worship. Now, some may rightly ask, well, Richard, isn't all of life worship? And yes, that's true, but that statement needs some explanation that on the one hand, yes, I mean, we, we worship God, you know, Monday through Saturday as well. I mean, whenever we're scattered throughout the city and we're living out our various callings and vocations as spouses and parents and brothers and sisters and um, sons and daughters and in our jobs and as neighbors and all these various things and all of our friendships that, yes, there's a, we're, we're called to, to worship God, to glorify Him in, in all that we do. But Psalm 95 and then the totality of Scripture make it very clear that God's people are also to gather together for corporate worship of the one true God as a community of God's covenant people week after week, you know, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And so we see, come, let us. And then notice that word come that shows up in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 6. See, as Psalm 95 is telling us, really from the beginning of this psalm, that, that worship is something that, for lack of a better way to put it, interrupts our lives. That we, we stop doing other things, we leave those things, and we come to worship. That we set other priorities aside, other things aside. We make room in our calendars and we come to gather with God's people to worship. And that's regardless of how, how wonderful and consistent and rich our individual personal quiet times of Bible reading and Bible prayer are. And I hope they are wonderful and rich and, 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 and frequent 
for you. It doesn't matter how wonderful our small group Bible studies are. And again, I hope they're wonderful and fruitful and, and frequent and, and, and great. That we still need to come. To come and, and stop these other things and come to worship with God's people Lord's Day after Lord's Day. But then also notice in verse 1, joy. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So in many of the Psalms, we see the, the metaphor of rock used to describe God and to emphasize how God himself is the solid rock, the, our fortress, um, the, the, the solid foundation of our faith, that he is our rock, the rock of our salvation, that he alone provides safety and security and stability in a world that is so often unsafe and insecure and unstable. And he provides that safety and security and stability for all who, who trust him. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way, God is our abiding, immutable, and mighty rock, and in him we find deliverance and safety. Therefore, it becomes us to praise him with heart and with voice from day to day, and especially should we delight to do this when we assemble as his people for public worship. And it's clear that Psalm 95 is calling God's covenant people to come and gather to worship. It's the rock of our salvation. The psalmist is addressing those who are recipients of, of God's grace. And for those of us today, where we live in the history of redemption, we know that God's grace has been accomplished for us by Christ, by the Savior. And, and those of us who trust in Christ have every reason to sing and to make joyful noises to the rock of our salvation. And we see the psalmist continue in verse 2, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. We have so many things to be thankful for. And you notice in verse 1 and 2 that the word joyful appears in our English translations. But in the Hebrew, the word joy or joyful actually shows up three times. And I think even that is, is showing us how the psalmist is intentional about emphasizing, emphasizing the, 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 the joy and the enthusiasm that ought to mark our worship whenever we gather with God's people to praise and worship Him. Even and especially when the circumstances of our lives are quite hard and quite difficult. Okay, well, why? Well, look at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. But why should our worship, why can and why should our worship always be marked with joy, enthusiasm, thanksgiving? Because God is that great. That he's absolutely worthy of our joyful praise and thanksgiving week after week after week. That, you know, the, the, the hour and 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 25 minutes, you know, who's counting, that we gather together here in this place between the call to worship and the benediction should be a time when our eyes no longer look down at our circumstances only, and instead, our eyes are to be lifted, and our gaze is to be fixed on our God whose greatness is truly unmatched. And the psalmist is reminding us of this. There's none who is over our God. There is none who is like our God. And notice in verse 3, the, word, the adjective great is used twice. Our great God, he's a great king above all gods. See, the psalmist is emphasizing God's supreme superiority. And his majesty and his glory as the one and only God. 
Put simply, our God is truly incomparable. Uh, a Presbyterian pastor from the 1800s named William Plummer um, wrote a commentary on the Psalms, and in there he says, if we would be strong and happy servants of Christ, let us meditate much on God's greatness. He is the infinite God, unmeasurable in all his glorious attributes. There's no limit to any of his perfections, and there is no perfection of God in which his people may not find matter of exaltation. That we always have reason to exalt our God, to, to praise him, to give thanks for him, to make joyful noises to the Lord in praise of our great God, the great King above all gods. And, and it seems even in what comes next in verses 4 and 5 that the psalmist is reaching, grasping for words to try to explain um, and, and label God's, God's greatness. And so he uses really extreme terms. He says in verse 4, In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. I think this is the psalmist's way of asking us, you know, do you realize who your God is? You know, do you realize the, the measure of his immense greatness, of his superiority, of how great and wonderful and, and, and he is? Do you realize the bigness of your God, that, that whether you go down to the depths of the, the Mariana Trench deep in the Pacific Ocean, or you go all the way up to the heights of the tallest mountains and Mount Everest, all of this is, is in his hand, that he spoke it all into existence. He made it. He controls it. There's not a single uh, piece of creation that lies outside of our sovereign God's authority and control and power and goodness, that the entire world owes allegiance and praise to God and to God alone. And where he's, what he's driving at is, realize this is who your God is. This great God, this great king above all gods is your God. And he not only knows you, as incredible as that is, but he loves you. That he gave his one only son to live and to suffer and to bleed and to die to save you. And our response to this incredibly wonderful thought should be exuberant joy and praise. Joy and praise that's also coupled together with reverence. And that's what we see next in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. You know, one, one commentator says that verse 6 is the beating heart of Psalm 95. And whenever you think about how Psalm 95 in many ways is, is a great uh, is at the heart of, is a great text that's at the heart of what worship is to be all about and the, the characteristics and the elements of worship, then we see that, that, that Psalm 95 verse 6 is at the beating heart of, of understanding worship. You see, verse 6 is much more a call to worship than it is a command to come and submit. It does talk about worshiping and bowing down and kneeling, but this is something that those of us who love God, who are loved by God because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that we do willingly, that we do joyfully. It's a call to worship. You see, if you look at verse 6, there are three verbs in the Hebrew text translated worship, bow down, and kneel. And each of these intensifies the, 
the reverence that the psalmist is talking about. So the first one that's translated worship, it means to prostrate oneself or literally bow oneself low to the ground. That it could mean to literally lie face down on the ground. And then we see the next one is translated bow down, which intensifies this reverential posture towards God, which, which we owe him, which he is worthy of. And then the next one is translated kneel, which again continues to add to, this, to the growing intensity of this verse. That each of these verses is concerned with us getting low before God. Come, let us lie face down on the ground. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. And the point is that, that we should get low before our great God in reverence and in humility because of who he is. Because there really is a creator and a creature distinction. That he is God and we are not. That he is God and he alone. There's only one God and you are not him, I am not him. And so do you see what Psalm 95 is doing for us? It instructs us that we need to couple our exuberant joy and praise and thanksgiving with reverence for a holy God and, and not worship that's marked by only one or the other. Again, Charles Spurgeon says, it's not always easy to unite enthusiasm with reverence. And it's a frequent fault to destroy one of these qualities while straining after the other. The perfection of singing is that which unites joy with gravity, exultation with humility, fervency with sobriety. Joining these two together, coupling them together. And often when a church goes through a sort of worship war, what ends up happening is that one group is really going after pushing one and one group's pushing the other. One's pushing the service should be more joyful and, 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 and more casual, where the others are pushing that the service should be more formal and more reverential. Well, who's right? Well, I think Psalm 95 says, yes, yes, that it should be joy and exuberance and thanksgiving coupled together with, with reverence and awe for our great God. That, that our worship service, from the call to worship to the benediction, should, in a sense, take us all on a journey where, at times, we're overwhelmed with joy that just overflows in, in praise. But other times, we should experience the weight and the gravity of our sin because we have rebelled against a holy God. And so, coupling together joy and reverence is really what makes a worship service so distinct from all of the other kind of corporate events that we experience in our lives. I mean, there, there are many other events where in times in our lives, maybe even during the week, whenever we're in a room with this many or more people. But that's different than a worship service, right? Going, going to watch a movie, going to a concert, going to a sporting event. It, it, it's not the same. It's not this this joy and awe and reverence all coupled together that makes the worship service such a unique experience unlike anything else in our lives. But not only is it this communal uh, joining together of, of, of joy and reverence, but it's also a time of intimacy with us between God's covenant people and, and our God. Look, look with me at verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. See, here we see the covenant language of he is our God 
and we are his people. He is our God, we are his people. You see, we see that, that, that language echoing throughout the Bible um, in, in many different ways. Some, it's, it's often some version of, you shall be my people and I will be your God. See, this language represents God's commitment to a covenant relationship with his people, and it really does echo throughout the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. We see it in Genesis 17, Exodus 19, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 7, Jeremiah 30 and 31, Zechariah 8, here in Psalm 95. We see it in 2 Corinthians 6, in Hebrews 8. We see it in John 14. We see at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, and we see it in in many other passages and chapters in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But you shall be my people and I will be your God. It emphasizes God's commitment to a covenant relationship with his people. A covenant relationship, a covenant of grace, a covenant that saves, secures, blesses his people through the work of the Savior, through the work of Christ. And it's a commitment and a promise that really is as big as the Bible. And it runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's the promise we see here in this passage. The the Protestant reformer uh, Martin Luther once said that one could argue that the very essence of Christianity was found in these personal pronouns, my and your. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Or in our text, our and we. He is our God we are his people. You know, many parents or grandparents have, in this room, I, I know have at times um, at least started working your way through the children's catechism with your children. And I, I know that as you begin working through it, I, I, I know it's a challenge to get all the way through. But most people make it at least through the first five questions. They're, they're all pretty short, and, and the kids really get them, they're into them, then it becomes a little bit more of a challenge. But So most are familiar with, early on, there's the question, why should you glorify God? And the answer is because he made me and he takes care of me. Why should you glorify God? Because he made me and he takes care of me. In many ways, that's wonderful commentary on Psalm 95, verse 7. See, in verse 7, we see this familiar biblical metaphor as God is our good shepherd and we as the sheep, reminding us that he, he knows us. He knows us by name that we are his and he is ours. Like a good shepherd, he protects us. And like a good shepherd for his sheep, he provides for us. It is his pasture, not not ours, that he lovingly cares for us and meets our needs. And perhaps as you're thinking about this metaphor of a shepherd, and especially the good shepherd, that, that, that calls to mind passages in the New Testament, specifically in John chapter 10. In John 10, verses 14 and 15, we read Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's a few verses later in verses 27 to 29, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Remember back to Psalm 95, verse 7, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. 
Then you see what Jesus says in John 10, 27, that my sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I lay down my life for them, and I hold them in my hand. That you're that secure, and not just that secure, that's very secure to be held in your Savior's hand, but we're doubly secure because we're also not only held in the hand of God the Son, but also the hand of God the Father. And so as we come across Psalm, come to Psalm 95, and we see this, this invitation, this call to worship, we know that we can boldly and confidently approach the, the great and holy God of the universe in worship because of Christ. Because what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, that he is the good shepherd. God the Son, God the Father hold us in their hands. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he will see that all of his sheep, each and every one, make it all of the way home. So our worship should be marked by community and joy and reverence and intimacy. Then we also see, in the beginning of verse 7, marked by God's word. Today, if you hear his voice. See, the very important part of corporate worship is hearing God's voice. And where do we hear God's voice? Where has God spoken? He speaks, he has spoken in his word. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. The word of God breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, that the people of God may be complete equipped for every good work. The Scripture is the Word of God. It's authoritative, it's sufficient, it's the unchanging Word of God. Which on the one hand is why our worship services always have a time of, of reading of the Word and preaching of the Word. But it's also why, you know, that the call to worship is, is from the Word of God. The benediction is the Word of God. And, and a way to describe everything that happens in between is that we will read the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, preach the Bible, and see the Bible in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The psalmist says in verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice. One commentator put it, Worship is prompted by a right view of God, which in turn prompts a response to his word. And in so many ways, that's a great summary of the outline of Psalm 95. The first six and a half verses have, talk about this right view of God. And then now, as we turn from a guide for our worship to the second heading, a, a warning for our hearts, uh, the psalmist is prompting a, a response to who God is and to what he has said in his word. And so I'm going to read the very end of Psalm 95, from verse 7 down to verse 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of, at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this is a, a sober, really solemn warning, a call to examine our hearts. Now, it's, it's not a call to examine the hearts of other people. It's a call to examine your own heart. It's a call for me to examine my own heart. It's easy for us to get preoccupied with the hearts of others, but it's a call to examine our own hearts. And this, this warning from verse 7 to verse 11 is, I think, in many ways, a combination of at least two 
very sad stories from the Old Testament. The first being from Exodus 17, which is mere days after God used Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. They just passed through the the parted Red Sea on dry land. They're now traveling through the wilderness, through the desert, and God is graciously in providing manna from heaven and quail for them to eat. And after God does all of this to prove to the Israelites that he really was their God, that he loved them, he had not forgotten them, that he was faithful to keep his promises, they still doubted God's goodness and his faithfulness. And so we read in Exodus 17, verses 2 and 3, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so think about this. I mean, this is mere days after they had just seen and experienced God's faithfulness in in, in rescuing them from Egypt through the Exodus. I mean, this is days after they had walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. I mean, they're daily seeing God's provision for them with the manna, with the quail, and yet they did not and they would not trust God. That's the first story, where they grumbled at at, at Meribah and, and Massa. And then I think the next story is a reference to Numbers 13 and 14, okay? This is when God used Moses to lead the Israelites through the desert up to the very edge of the promised land of Canaan. And in Numbers 13, they send the 12 spies to scope out the land and prepare for their conquest of the land of Canaan, the land that God promised he would give them. You remember, the 12 spies, they returned, they said, listen, the land is a lot better than what we even imagined it would be. It really is a land flowing with milk and honey. It really is exceedingly wonderful. But 10 of the spies told the people that the inhabitants of the land, they're too powerful. They're too savage. Our, we'll never be able to defeat them. Our conquest of the land will not be successful. However, the other two spies, Caleb and Joshua, pleaded with the people to trust God, to have faith in his promises, that God would go with them like he said he would, that God would fight their battles for them like he said he would, that God would give them the land like he said he would. But the Israelites refused to believe God. And so sadly, tragically, we read in Numbers 14, verses 1 to 4, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And the result was that God refused to let that unbelieving generation of Israelites, except for Caleb and Joshua, to enter the promised land. Whereas Psalm 95, 11 says, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, now why is this warning here at the end of Psalm 95? Well, it's always helpful and it's always a good idea that to to allow scripture to interpret scripture where we can and it just so happens that in the new testament book of hebrews that these verses psalm 95 verse 7 to verse 11 are quoted word for word um, in hebrews chapter 3 it just so happens they're hebrews 3 verses 7 to 11 
And then in verse 12 of Hebrews 3, we begin reading this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, he quotes from Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. In the very next verse, beginning of chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, so we're going to come back to this, but he's talking about now for us today. Post-Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, there's still uh, a rest for the people of God that still stands. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Okay, now that's a lot of reading in Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews says, that an entire generation of Israelites, they were eyewitnesses to God's miracles, to his character, to his love for his people, to his grace, his faithfulness to his promises. Right? I mean, they, they knew the stories. They had experienced the stories. Walked across the, 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 the sea on dry ground. And yet, good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why not? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And I mentioned that the author of Hebrews says that there's a, a rest, God's rest, that still stands. And we can tell from the rest of Hebrews 4 that this ultimate rest, this rest that still stands, that the author of Hebrews is speaking about is eternal life with God beginning now and extending onward into eternity in heaven with God. But there's a warning, both in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4, but the warning is not, okay, do not come to worship if you're not a Christian. Okay, if you're here this morning and you're not exactly sure what you believe about Christ, or maybe you know for sure that you're not yet a Christian, then listen, welcome. We want you to be here. We, we pray and we plan for you to be here. You know, we want you to bring your questions and your doubts, your story. We would love to hear your story. I would love to tell you my story. We want you to keep coming, keep coming back. Besides, where else are you going to go to look for the answers if not here? So keep coming back. Okay, but, but what is the warning in Psalm 95? Simply put, the warning is, examine your own heart. As often is the, as often the case, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Remember how Jesus quotes Isaiah in Mark 7, verse 6, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, the, the danger that Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4 warn against is the danger of an unbelieving heart. It's a warning to examine your own heart. See, it's possible to 
faithfully participate in the worship of God, serve in the ministry of a church, and still simply be going through the motions and for none of it to ever reach the depths of your heart. Right? The psalmist's point, the author of Hebrews' point is don't let that be you. To examine your own heart. Listen again to Hebrews 4.2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You see, mere religious activity cannot, will not save you. Never has saved anyone. It's not going to save you or me. The only thing, the only one who saves is Christ. It's not enough just to know about him, but to unite what we know, those, that gospel story with faith, to trust and to receive and rest upon Christ alone. As you heard Alex answer that vow earlier, it's, it's the second vow in our membership, to receive and rest upon Christ alone as Savior, to receive and rest in his finished work, his perfect, sinless, righteous life, life lived on our behalf, life we failed to live, to receive and rest on his atoning, sufficient, sacrificial death on Calvary's cross, a death died on our behalf, to receive and rest in his glorious, victorious resurrection from the grave that first Easter morning on our behalf, so that we trust in him, our sins are washed away, we're washed clean, we're made new, New creations were born again. We are credited with Christ's righteousness, wrapped, clothed in his robes of righteousness. So the warning here in Psalm 95 is it's not, okay, get busy, begin working harder, cleaning up your life, having your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you know, becoming more religious. I mean, I, I, you ought to go to church more often. I hope you will come to church more often. But, but even that in of itself will not save you. See, the warning here is not to get busy working at trying harder. It's not to get busy at working at becoming more religious. The, the, the warning here is to examine your heart. To say to yourself, what am I trusting in today? Am I trusting in Christ? Do, do I know him? Do I love him? Do, do I hear his voice? If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Trust Christ, love him, seek to obey his word out of your love for him. You know, at the very beginning of the sermon, I said that, that the message of Psalm 95 is, is timeless and it's just as applicable today as it was thousands of years ago. And that's very much the case. The warning is just as applicable today as it has been for the last thousands of years. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's no one in this room who's so good that you don't need a savior. And there's no one in this room who's too big of a sinner that Christ cannot and will not save you if you run to him by faith. Trust in him. Receive and rest upon him alone. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, Corporate worship with your people is a glorious thing. We desperately need it week after week after week. But how sad it is for us to be here and to never ever examine our hearts.
to see that we trust and love Christ. But Father, as we trust and love Christ, may we then make every effort, one, to, to come and to join with your people, but also to have hearts that are, that are ready, that are willing, that are eager to give joyful praise, to sing and make joyful noises to you, our God and our King. Not only joyful noises, but to come with a, with a heart posture of, of reverence, to come knowing that, that, that you are our God and we are your people, that we are the sheep of your pasture, the sheep of your hand, that Christ is our good shepherd. He lays down his life for us, the sheep. He holds us, you hold us in your hand, and that you will bring us, your people, all the way home. Lord, please write these truths upon our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.